0: So we're continuing in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, we are going to be looking at Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 33. Last week we looked at uh, the healing of Ananias and the raising of, uh, of Tabitha, or, or Dorcas as her name was. Uh, and we left off with Peter. He was in uh, a home in the city of Joppa where he had performed this, he, this resurrection. Uh, he was in the home of Simon the Tanner, Joppa on the coast, kind of south central coast of, uh, of Israel. And we have seen the powerful working of the Holy Spirit that was spreading across Jerusalem and Judea and it was uh, reaching uh, the farthest extent of Israel. And so we pick up today Peter still in the home of this man Simon the Tanner. So, with that, let me go ahead and read God's Word, reading from the book of Acts, chapter 1, chapter 10, verses 1 to 33. your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God, and now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called, his two, called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related, relayed everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went on up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. And the voice came to him again, and a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, these men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well-spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he arose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, "'Stand up, I too am a man.' And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves now know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you have sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once. And you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us uh, to understand your word. But more than that, to uh, apply your word in our lives, that we would live in light of these things. We ask that you would uh, do this by your spirit, that you would indeed work in our hearts. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Some years ago, I um, was. Uh, meeting with a fellow, he was a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Pittsburgh, and he always had uh, the way he talked it was like a lot of philosophy students. Um, and, but he used a word when I was talking to him um, that I that I had heard plenty of times before, but never used in this context in this particular way, and I was struck by it. Uh, I was struck by this word, and as I was sitting with him, uh, it's a word now that has been, I've heard it used in this manner many times since, but at, at this moment in my life, it, I marked it as, as that's an interesting way, an interesting phrase, and this was what he said. As we were sitting, we were talking about uh, his, his life, his time at the church, his time in the community, and he said, this community group that I'm a part, of, a part of is my tribe. I was like, now, now that sounds common probably to most of you at this point, but at that point it was, it was a strange way. I'd always thought of the word tribe in terms of uh, maybe a Native American tribe or something to that effect. Um, but here he was using it like a word we might use like family, right? He was using it in that kind of context. But what struck me then, and why I'm bringing it up now, is that this student was taking this sort of latest anthropological language, if you will, from the broader culture, and using it to describe, and actually I believe accurately, uh, uh, our tendency to tribalize. Now that's probably not a word. I'm just going to make that up right now. Um, What do I I mean? To join together with folks who look like us, talk like us, think like us, and act like us. We have that tendency. And I would say, in our day and age, in America particularly, I feel like there is sort of an intense pressure to do that. To tribalize. That's my word. Affinity groups aren't necessarily a bad thing. What makes them toxic... What makes them bad is when we wall ourselves off from others who are not like us. And I think what we see in our text this morning uh, is this uh, insular, if you will, nature that Peter has. He can't see past the walls of his own confines, his, his culture, his people. I and mean, he even expresses it uh, to Cornelius. We'll see that later on. Um, There's this tendency, I think, to become insular. And in that insular nature of being walled off, we also become fearful, don't we? Fearful of others. People that are not like us. Well... Our text this morning is about God reaching out across these tribal lines despite our reluctance. He's breaking down these walls, these barriers between Greek and Jew in the text. Um, After all, Jesus had promised that he would gather together as one people, people from every tribe, every tongue, and every language. And I want us to think about how God reaches across these lines. And what kind of lines? They're all types. There are the obvious ones. of, uh, You know, you have ethnic and, and racial lines, but you also have economic lines, and you have social lines, you have cultural lines, you have political lines, you have so many lines and walls that we build up with one another. We become Fearful. So I want to look at how God reaches across tribal lines despite our reluctance in three parts. First, I want us to see that God is accomplishing His purposes despite us. Despite us, He accomplishes His purposes. God challenges our reluctance to move across these lines. And thirdly, the Gospel cuts across the deepest of divides. So that's where we're headed. So first, God is accomplishing His purposes, despite us. The chapter opens not with Peter, who 's in Joppa it 's farther south. Uh, it opens in Caesarea, which is also on the coast it 's just farther north. in fact, Caesarea is sort of it 's right on the edge of sort of the land of Israel. Um, here we meet a man by the name of Cornelius. He's a centurion. Uh, it is uh, a man who is prominent. Um, now, where was Peter? Because the very previous verse to the, to the verse we started with, it simply says "And Peter was staying at Simon the Tanner's. Where is Peter? He is still in Joppa basking in the glow of the amazing work of God and raising Tabitha and the way the gospel went out. He's, He's sitting there basking in that glow, if you will, in this man's house. I don't know what Peter's plans were, but I doubt they were to start seeking out the Gentiles. At least not right away. Uh, Aaron t- keeps telling me to make a doctor's appointment. We, we haven't quite established ourselves fully here, and one of the establishing things is getting a doctor, right? That's fundamental to wherever you live, you should have a doctor. I, and I'm planning to plan to do that. <laughs> Piers probably a bit like that, isn't he? I'm planning to plan to reach out to the Gentiles. I know that's part of the plan of God's mission, that He's going to go across these grand lines and dividing lines, and He's going to bring peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's a grand scheme. But I'm in Joppa, enjoying the seaside village, enjoying the the fellowship with new believers here. So instead of being in Joppa with Peter our text focuses on this Centurion Cornelius uh, he was a Centurion of the Italian cohort it was a cohort is akin to kind of like a battalion in the army uh, this particular Italian cohort we know uh, from Roman records was a fairly large one it was a, they called it an auxiliary cohort none of that matters other than to say that this man who was a Centurion he oversaw a Centurion century 100 he oversaw a hundred soldiers. He would be akin to a captain, if you will. And uh, his, the captain, you might say, was sort of the, the, the glue of the Roman army. It, he was the sort of most significant uh, position. He was sort of the one who was directly overseeing men. Uh, he wasn't just pushing paper around. He was an important person prominent Roman figure who had oversight for the army of Rome in Judea. That's significant. Why is Rome in Judea? Because they control Israel. This was a problem for most Israelites. This was a deep-seated frustration that they were not in control of their own land, but were ruled by a Roman Empire. And the person that represented Rome to them was this centurion. Not just Cornelius, but any centurion. Yet we're told that Cornelius feared God along with his entire household, and he gave alms generously, and he prayed continually to God. He was a God-fearer. It's really, uh, with ironic delight, I think, that God makes it a point to set his affection on those who are most despised or marginalized. Uh, It's just kind of what God does. I think he finds ironic delight. And we see this paradigm throughout the Gospels. Whether it's an adulterous Samaritan, or a tax collector, or the blind and lame, or the demon-possessed, or most recently we saw an Ethiopian eunuch. God finds delight in setting His grace on the least likely of candidates. In fact... This isn't the first time that we've seen the centurion as an object of God's grace. If you go back to the Gospels. Uh, it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. A centurion comes to Jesus on account of a sick servant whom Jesus heals. And what does Jesus say of the centurion? He says these words, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So. That's a condemning word right there. But it's also a picture of the way God lavishes His grace to those you would least expect. Of course, again at the cross, after His disciples had fled and Peter had denied Him, a centurion uh, said these words, Truly this was the Son of God. This is multiple times in the Gospels, centurions are highlighted. And here again, in the book of Acts, we see a centurion. God meets cornelius we 're told that at the ninth hour or around three p m it was a traditionally a time of prayer they had, traditionally in Jewish culture there would have been three times of prayer morning noon, and, and evening and the three p m hour was the evening hour of prayer, and he was praying, and he saw a vision, and an angel visited him. And the angel said, Your prayers and your aims and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. And he's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, I want to stop here just for a very brief moment. This brings up a potential question Did God reach out to Cornelius because he gave alms and prayed? That there were some. Uh, thing that this man did that earned favor with God, so that God would be favorable to him. Um, I, 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 I think if we were to go through the rest of Scripture, we would recognize that that, that is not the way God functions. Uh, John one, just as an ex- or first John, just as an example, says that in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us he sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins it's god who initiates it's god who brings us so but jesus did say seek and you shall find knock and the door shall be opened You see, God has already been at work in preparing the heart of Cornelius and the rest of the family. God is the one who gave him this reverence for himself and a desire to know him. And Cornelius was already starting to show the kind of sacrificial life that is pleasing to God, the the aroma of sacrifice, if you will, that is going up because it was born of God himself. You see, Cornelius was seeking God and God was already at work preparing his heart. To receive the gospel. Now, this morning, there may be some of you here who are also seeking God. You have a longing, a hunger, a desire. You're here, you're, you're worshiping because, well, you don't know where else to go and you don't know what else to do, and you're here and you want to know God. And my, my encouragement to you is seek and you will find. The love of God. This is also a reminder for us believers here to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is in you. You never know who God is working in and who He is preparing to receive the Gospel. I guarantee you will be surprised. It will not be the people you think. And we have to have eyes to see the irony, the ironic love of God, that it goes out to the, the those that we think of as the least deserving, God sets His affection on those. And we know this to be true because He loved each and every one of us. And who of us was deserving? This brings me to my second point. Cornelius obeys the angel, sends his emissaries to go to Peter. And here we see that God challenges our reluctance. He challenges us. What strikes me most about this whole episode is how passive the apostles are in it. Uh, First, they don't even show up right away. What we see is God working uh, in the heart of Cornelius, God meeting with Cornelius, and then God meeting with Peter, Peter being himself, kind of clueless, Sure, I'm being kind of harsh right now. They were spreading the gospel to Jerusalem and Judea. But it's interesting. In both cases of early Gentile converts, the Ethiopian eunuch and here, Cornelius and his family, God himself took the initiative. Philip, go. Right? Right? Here, Cornelius, go. Peter. It's like he had to he had to direct the apostles. In this there are two things for us. I think there are two things a reason to mourn and a reason to rejoice. I think we ought to evaluate our own hearts. It's hard for us to cross tribal lines. And, and what I mean by that is just any of those lines, those barriers that we put up between people that are not like us or don't we can't relate to or they just seem different from us and we just we struggle across those lines it's uncomfortable. It feels like we risk all sorts of missteps and unintended offenses and even outright rejection and the tribal lines are many i've already Mention them. Ethnicity, race, economics, class, politics, social, generational. Gender. Male, female. You name it. And the thing is, as as believers, we know that we're called to bear witness to the truth, but we often feel stuck, frozen. We don't know how to move past it. It's a good reason to mourn. God is preparing hearts, but it's a good reason to mourn, to cry out to God, to change our heart, to give us a deep love for those who are not like us, that we might consider their, their, their life as more significant than ours, that we would go across those lines, even at the risk of rejection. It's a reason to mourn. But there's a reason to Rejoice. God is at work despite us. He is preparing hearts. His providence is leading people to us despite us. Have you ever noticed that? The most random moments you'll be confronted with somebody who, is, who comes to you and says, can you, can, I, I'm, I'm struggling with life right now. Do you have any answers? And you're like, well, I have Jesus. Jesus. And you're sort of taken aback that you have this opportunity. And the person, uh, maybe you've not had this experience. I don't, I don't, I don't know. But, but, I, but I can say as one who has, oftentimes I'm not going out looking. God is bringing people to me because of my own frailty. God says, well, I, I, I know your weakness, Rob. You need to go out. You need to go across those lines. But I will bring people to hear the gospel because my will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Cornelius was being brought, or Peter was being brought to Cornelius, but these men who came, these emissaries, were were coming. Um, And of course, that, that God is at work is no reason to sit back. Rather, it's a reminder that Christ is the Savior, not us. We are His instruments. But He does not need us. Rather, He chooses to use us... Why? To show the immeasurable power of His grace that He can even use fumbling, fearful people like you and me to bring about His kingdom purposes. And so it is with Peter. Peter also was met by God. Also during the hour of prayer, uh, the sixth hour rather than the ninth hour, around 12 noon. And as most of us can relate, Peter was hungry. It was lunchtime. Lunch was being prepared uh, downstairs, and yet he was praying to the Lord. And while he was doing this he went into a trance state it so said he went into a state of a vision state which was not uncommon for the prophets of old and what it was was god was bringing him lunch it wasn't the lunch he wanted it wasn't the lunch he expected but it was a sheep full of unclean animals, oh, actually all animals, animals of all sorts and types, and God brought this to him, and he, the, the, the voice speaks out and says, kill, rise, get up, kill, and eat, and I thought, it's kind of ironic, he's staying at a tanner, there's a tanner do, but take the hides of dead animals, and make them into all sorts of leather, a very sort of gross task. It would have been a task that was, would make you unclean. The tanner probably had to go through all sorts of ritual to clean himself. It was interesting that Peter was even at the tanner's house. Um, but here he is, he's saying, Peter, you can't just let the tanner down there do the killing. Stand up, rise, eat these things here. What's, what's uh, Peter's response to God? Well, in typical Peter fashion, he has no, uh, no sense of decorum. <laughs> He says, by no means. Let's put it in the colloquial, right? No way, no how, no show, no go. I'm not touching that stuff. I ain't never and it ain't happening, Lord. That's just not going to... I am not touching it. You see, the problem was, that in this creature mixed, were all sorts of animals that were unclean. Now... Kids, I'm going to look at the kids that are here. Are there things you don't like to eat? Adults, are there things you don't like to eat? Um, I love sushi. I love, uh, love it. Um, But there was one time where I had, uh, and I love eggs. I love them. There was one time I had a, a, a raw quail egg cracked on top of a sea urchin. It was a bridge too far for me. I don't know. Maybe some of you, that's a delicacy you love. But for me, it was too much. Uh, But that wasn't the issue. Those feelings of grossness might have been compounding things for the Apostle Peter. But it was more akin to someone offering up a pet to us. It's still not quite it, but it's more like that. If someone said, here, let me cook your pet and eat it. We would have a revulsion to it. A moral problem. You see, there was a moral component to this sheep full of animals. The Old Testament had forbidden certain animals from being consumed. And you can go back, if you have uh, your Bibles, you can look at the book of Leviticus chapter 11. There's a whole list of things you can eat and things you can't eat. It had everything to do with the hooves. So, kids can go look that up. It's all about the hoof. Well, there's other animals that couldn't eat as well. but And the reason they weren't to be consumed was because they were characterized as unclean. You see, the Israelites, as God's people, were to be set apart from all the other peoples of the earth. They were to be holy. They received a mark of circumcision. They ate differently. There were various laws regarding cleanliness. And all these things were Old Testament signs that pointed to a need. The need to be clean and undefiled in order to approach God. Of course, none of those outward rules actually affected the real issue, which was the heart, right? So all those things pointed, they were signs pointing to to a need to be clean, but they didn't actually do anything. Jesus said in the Gospels, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. See, the real issue was the heart. Jesus had already declared all foods clean. The signs had served their purpose. And along with the temple and the sacrifices, they were no longer necessary. Right? All of that is done away with, Peter. And that's why the voice said, What God has made clean, don't call it common. Don't call it unclean. But in a typical Peter fashion, it took three visions, three, before the reality began to sink into Peter. And even then, he was confused. He was still wrestling with, what in the world did God send this picture? of? Okay, fine, I can eat these animals, but what is this all about? And in the midst of all of that, here come visitors official Roman visitors down the road. Um, If you've just raised somebody from the dead and uh, the Lord's just raised somebody from the dead through you, and you've just healed somebody. And there's sort of this this rise of, of people that are coming out to this new thing. You threaten the peace and stability of a country, of a, of a place. And so I can imagine that the people that were in the house of Simon uh, Simon the Tanner were a little nervous when these three Roman officials came forward to them. Peter was confused. Of course, the issue wasn't food at all. The issue was these tribal lines. God was confronting Peter's reluctance to go into all the world as the apostles had been commissioned to do. Peter was a good Jewish man. This is what he knew. God was upending his sense of security and reminding him that his hope was not in those outward things and being a good Jewish man, but his hope was in Christ. Whenever Christ confronts us, it's most often the case that he is rooting out some sort of idol that impedes us from following him. Isn't that true? Let me ask the question, what impedes you from crossing these lines, from reaching across the aisle? Who is it that is metaphorically unclean or common in your mind? Not somebody you want to associate with, not somebody you want to engage with. Who is that person in your mind? Why is that the case? What is it in your own heart that prevents you from going out? What what type of idols do you have? Is there something more precious to you than Christ? You see, the Gospel can't help but confront our prejudice, because its very nature breaks down dividing walls. And this brings me to my final point and my conclusion. The Gospel cuts across the deepest of divides. Peter didn't quite grasp the vision, even after all three of them, until these emissaries knocked at the door. and. Even then it took God directly speaking to him. He's still up on the roof contemplating these things in his prayer time. And these men have come to the to the gate and they're crying out, Where is Simon Peter? And I don't know if he heard them or if he was just in his own world. But the, the Lord speaks to him again and said, I have sent them to you. Go with them. Don't, don't delay. Don't haste. Don't do anything. Just get up and go with them. So he goes downstairs and he opens the door, and here are these Roman officials. And the light is starting to go on in Peter's mind. He says, He asked them a question well, so, so, what are you doing here? Why did you come? What's the reason? And they said, Cornelius. A centurion, but an upright and God-fearing man, who's well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to this to his house and to hear what you have to say. So, what does he do? I think the lights are going on for Peter, and he's like, "I see, Lord, I see. I know. I know you've said it before. I know you've talked about this thing that I have to. I know I need to make a doctor's appointment." But I need to go to the ends of the earth and bring the gospel to bear so that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation can worship around the throne of the living God. So they go, they, 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 he hosts them, and then they leave. They go to, back to uh, Caesarea up to the north. They meet Cornelius, and Peter enters. And what does Cornelius do? It's hard to picture, right? He's this strong, mighty warrior, centurion, leader of men. And what does he do? He falls in worship at the feet of Peter. Now, uh, Peter quickly realized that he's got it a little bit backwards. And this is why Peter was sent, because Peter needed to point him to Jesus. So he says, Get up, Cornelius. Stand up, I am just a man. And as he talked with him, he found more people gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit any one of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent, I came without objection. And I ask you, And I ask then, why you sent me? And so Cornelius tells him his story and says, it's like the most... Can you imagine someone said, maybe this has happened, comes up to you and says, so what I really would like to know is who is Jesus and what does He mean for my life? Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? We'll look next week at Peter's response. Gospel cuts across the deepest of divides. You know? I think when Peter probably had some doubts when he was in Joppa, and he thought to himself, there was a prophet of old who thought, I'd, maybe I should go to Tarshish. I'll just get on a boat and leave. I don't have to deal with this situation. I don't want to go to Nineveh. Do you remember that story? Jonah? Because God was going to be gracious and merciful to the oppressors of Israel, the Ninevites, the Assyrians who were oppressing Israel. God was going to be gracious and merciful to them, and Jonah didn't want to have anything to do with that. You think that was going through Peter's mind as he thought about Cornelius? Cornelius? But here's the reality. Peter understood something. He understood something about his own heart. Peter was one who had turned his back on the Lord. Denied him three times. While Christ was was being persecuted and going to the cross, Peter would say, "I I don't know who this person is. I don't know anything about him and Jesus went and he suffered and he died and he was crucified and Peter was nowhere to be seen and I can't imagine what Jesus was thinking as he hung on the cross and he looked out at, his, at his, the fleeing disciples as they scattered across the land and he thought I've come to bridge the divide of heaven and earth to bring you to be reconciled to the Heavenly Father. And I'm going to do it through my death. You think that went through Peter's mind as he thought, what a little thing it is for me to go and share the gospel with a Roman centurion, when the Lord of glory died for me. What about you? What was the cost that Christ paid for your sin? What kind of cosmic divide was there for you? It was the same divide. How little a thing it is for us to go across these dividing walls and share the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess... And we mourn over our own reluctance, our own fears, the own walls that we build up, the people that we set aside as unclean. Lord, we ask that you would break us of our reluctance. We ask that you would work in our hearts and give us a love and a compassion that sacrifices even our standing before people in order to share the love with which you loved us that they might know that You are Lord, You are Savior. Lord, help us to do that. But we thank You for Jesus who bridged the divide between heaven and earth through Your Son, our Lord and Savior. We thank You for the grace that is found in Him. Lord, help us to love others in this way we ask. In Jesus' name.